On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. In our series, The Biblical Moses That Hollywood Forgot. And you know, when you're making a film, even a even a lengthy one, you know, uh, the famous one is uh, three and a half hours long. Um, but even in a uh, three and a half, four hour film, it's impossible to cover every phrase, every, every word. Um, and so necessarily for, uh, for storytelling's sake on the big screen, Hollywood has compressed a good deal of the story. We are under no such restriction. So we are uncompressing the uncompressed word of God. Nobody's sticking this Bible in a zip file. We're going to uncompress it for all its value. Now, previously, however, last week on the biblical Moses that Hollywood forgot, this is what we saw. We saw an introduction to the battle of the gods, round one, the battle between not Moses and Pharaoh, but the Lord and Pharaoh, the two gods, the Egyptian gods and the god uh, of of the universe. And, of course, we began by saying, yes, indeed. And let's make sure we have the volume up for our videos. Thanks. All right. Good. Good. Otherwise, I'll be forced to say, let's, in fact, we're all going to say it. Let's get ready to rumble. Right. Now, um, I could read some of the passages and tell you what happened, but I think I'd rather show you. And let's just watch this brief video. That brings us up to speed from where we were last week with a little preview of today's passage or a part of today's passage. You can see what Hollywood does with the Moses story. And this is the, you know, the archetypical Hollywood treatment of Moses is take a piece here, take a piece from here, squish it in like this, stick it around because it makes the scene flow much better. You can't have Moses keep coming back and forth and back and forth. So you, you compress them down and you tell the story. But again, uncompressed, this is the verse we left off with. And the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. He's not going to just let the people go in a passive sense, but Pharaoh will forcefully drive the Hebrews out after the Lord gets through with him. The Lord will make Pharaoh an offer he can. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am name over Adam. I am the Lord. The question that we wrestled with in the previous passage came from Pharaoh. And it's the question that will be answered over the next several weeks and the next several chapters. And that question goes back to Pharaoh's initial question, who is the Lord? I'm not familiar with it. I don't know this one. And I don't recognize his authority. So who is the Lord? And so here we have the beginning of an answer. I am Ani, Jehovah. Ani, I am the Lord. Moses is reminded, and the readers too, of the Lord's identity as the covenant God and of his 
powerful and timeless commitment to the Hebrews. The Lord is not going to forget his promises. He's the covenant-keeping God. He will not ignore his covenantal obligations. And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, Lord, Adonai, Hashem, the name Jehovah, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, some so-called scholars take a passage like this and say, well, this is obviously a, an example of a later editor coming together and stitching together a couple of disparate stories about Moses and about the Hebrews and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. I'll stitch them all together from different sources, whatever, and creating Torah. Um, because uh, we all know from reading Genesis that El Shaddai is not the only name by which God makes himself known to Abraham or to Isaac or Jacob. He does appear to them as, uh, as the covenant name, uh, Jehovah, YHVH, the Tetragrammaton. The passage is not saying, the Lord here is not saying that uh, I never identified myself by this particular name. No, no, no. What this passage is saying, what the Lord here is saying, is that it was impossible for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to know me as the covenant-keeping God, as the Lord, because they only knew me as the God who made promises, the God who established a covenant. But they couldn't know me in the sense, in the true sense, of my name as the covenant-keeping God, this divine and powerful covenant maker is all they knew. They didn't know me as covenant keeper. They knew God's personal name. It's all over. It's all over the uh, book of Genesis. But it would have been impossible for Abraham or Isaac or Jacob to have known the Lord, who experienced him in the same fashion that he was now revealing himself in a special, very special way. Patriarchs understood that God was the architect of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, he was the guarantor of that covenant's promises, but they, they never lived long enough to witness the promises brought to uh, fruition, as Moses will, and as the generation of Israelites contemporaneous with Moses will realize. We're going to have the privilege to understand and see that God is about to reveal more of himself and more of his power to the patriarch's descendants than he ever revealed to the patriarch. They themselves had ever experienced. So the Israelites of Moses' generation are going to get a full measure, a full dose of the Lord as the covenant-keeping God. I also have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. How many divine declarations do we have here? Three. I have established, I have heard, and I have remembered. Past, present, and outside of time. Established, heard, I remembered. In these three divine declarations, Moses is reassured, as are we, of God's compassion toward his people. And they were once again reminded, and boy, after hearing Straw and bricks, you know, bricks made without straw. I have to glean my own straw. This is a low point. 
they are once again reminded that God, that covenant-keeping God, the Lord, He has not in any way abandoned His covenantal promise to bring the Hebrews back to the land of the patriarchs, sojournings, the land of Canaan. I want you to remember that this is not just historical information to file away. The very character of the God of Moses, who is still the God that we serve, the very character, the personality traits of this God are on display here, self-revelation. And if it was true of Moses and his generation, then those same characteristics, those same qualities hold true today. God made a lot of promises since the time of Moses. There's a new covenant that was established, not just Abrahamic covenant and Mosaic covenant, which we haven't even gotten to yet. Giant shadow looms large over the rest of Scripture. But the new covenant, through the blood of Yeshua, promises made not only to the Hebrews, not only to the Israelites, not only to the Jews, but promises made to Gentiles as well. And it's nice to know that our God has the characteristics revealed by one who hears and one who establishes and one who remembers his promises and, and intends to keep every one of them. And to once established a covenant, we can rest assured, stand on the reassurance that once a covenant is made, our God will keep that covenant. That's good news for you. Good news for me. Let's read on. Yeah, I know. Amen or not? I mean, is, is this or is this not? discussing where we live. Do you or do you not need a reassurance? Because I certainly do. And I don't think that I'm particularly deficient in my faith versus anybody else's. But nonetheless, I still need reassurance that God is the God who once established will remember. And that God hears every groan. That God hears every sigh. That God hears every cry. It's not just my pillow that's hearing my, 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 uh, my cries. But those cries, those prayers, those yearnings send to the heaven. And so, you know, I've said this before. Say it again. You say, Steve, you sound like a broken record. Well, I'm sorry, it's not me. I don't make the news. I just report the news. Um, again, I want to emphasize to you just how important the Abrahamic covenant is in motivating the events of Torah the events of Exodus, right? Because when we think of Torah, before Torah is given, there is the Abrahamic covenant, right? People, when they think of the Jewish people, they really only go back, most of them, if they think of, of covenants at all, they only think about uh, the uh, Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant. But it is not the Sinai covenant that motivates the action in Torah. Uh, it is, especially in Exodus, it is the Abrahamic. So, because... Some of us have slept uh, since the last time I spoke of this, and some are, uh, are, are experiencing this or are being exposed to this information for the first time, whether here or uh, listening at home uh, on the Internet. We are going to once again just quickly reiterate the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant. What are these, co what are these covenant promises that he's remembering, um, that he established all those years ago? Um, of course, Genesis 12 Genesis 3, uh, 13, uh, so Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 
22. All of these chapters establish uh, components of the Abrahamic covenant, but we're not going to go through all of those. We're simply going to take a look at just one chapter and just a few verses within that one chapter that, in a sense, summarizes it all. And God took Abraham back to Genesis 15. Abraham outside. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. Previous uh, time, Genesis 13, he said, uh, look down uh, at the road and count the dust, right? So, uh, so look down. In other words, two chapters later, some time goes by. Uh, now let me give you another illustration. Look up, count the stars. If you're able to count them, so shall your descendants be. So when we talk about God making himself known as El Shaddai, um, El Shaddai has its etymology. This, this term, El is God, of course, Shaddai, has its etymology, uh, and it's debated, but basically it is uh, um, uh, the God who is sufficient to provide for fertility. The God who will guarantee the fertility of his people. In other words, that they'll be sufficient, and that they'll be multiplied, etc., which makes perfect sense when we think about uh, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, which are all dependent on a multiplicity of seed uh, with Abraham. So, so shall your descendants be. So God is making himself, uh, revealing himself as El Shaddai here in this passage. And he said to him, I am the Lord. Now here's the covenant name, same, same name. So still, um, not only El Shaddai, but also covenant name. But Abraham, again, couldn't possibly, uh, because he didn't live long enough, to really see all the guarantees that God was going to. He lived long enough, certainly, to see Isaac uh, and to see more children. Uh, but nonetheless, I am the Lord brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So land and seed. So you need land because that's what the seed are going to possess. You need seed because if you're going to possess the land, someone's going to have to possess it, right? So they are inextricably um, interwoven together, the Jewish people and the land of Israel, the land of promise and the chosen people, right? You can't have one without the other. Well, you can. It's called the diaspora. But now that was a historical blip, a 1900-year-old uh, year, uh, blip. God said to Avram, know for certain. This is where the Abrahamic covenant specifically plays into the Egyptian story here that Moses is relaying in Exodus. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land, Egypt, that, will, that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed. They'll be there 400 years. But I also will judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, um, to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Canaanite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, the Kryptonite, uh, for those Superman fans. But that's the Abrahamic covenant in a nutshell. And so when we, when we see the story of Moses, like I wish throughout the show, it would completely ruin the aesthetic appeal of uh, a film like the Ten Commandments, but I, I wish that, you know, you had the corner, the Abrahamic covenant, um, just bullet points, laid out so you could see over the course of three hours and 40 minutes or whatever it is, um, how the Abrahamic covenant bears, the, the, the bearing the, the Abrahamic covenant has on the events of Exodus. Well, anyway, enough of the uh, reiterating the Abrahamic covenant. I think I have, I have demonstrated the importance of that, especially, um, especially to a people who have just gotten really bad news. Make straw, uh, make bricks without straw. 
Uh, it doesn't look like we're getting out of here at any time. No, 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 this is just the beginning. You, as Al Jolson famously said a hundred years ago, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, but say, therefore, this is what the Lord says to Moses. Say, they're going to need an encouraging word, right? Uh, because in Egypt, seldom was heard an encouraging word, right? Um, but say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, this phrasing, eight, nine, I am the Lord. And all the baggage that that communicates, all of that covenant-keeping uh, subtext, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from their bondage. You will have your freedom. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Pharaoh thinks his arm is mighty. Wait till I roll up my sleeve and we'll see. This phrase, redeem, to redeem you. This is uh, from the word, you're familiar, many of us are familiar with this. In fact, we talked about it, was it last week at the Jewish Cultural Film Series, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, the near uh, redeemer, the family redeemer. Um, God is presenting himself here as Israel's Goel, as their kinsman redeemer, as the family member who will redeem them, who will take them to them, to him with an outstretched arm with great judgment. And then I will take you for my people. It's the same terminology, not the my people part, but I will take you. The same terminology that is used in a marriage ceremony. When a man takes his wife, he looks at her and says, I will take you to me. This is the relationship between the Lord and his people using terminology of a man, bride, wife. And I will be your God. I will take you to me and I will be your God. And you will know. What will you know? The answer to the question that Pharaoh is so ignorant of at this Who is Lord? You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So in this passage, actually we're not done yet. There's another verse here. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give you to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, an in-your-face reference to the Abrahamic covenant, of course, not an in-your-face reference if you haven't read Genesis. If you're ignorant of Genesis, then I can't help you, right? I mean, I, uh, how, how can you read Exodus without understanding the promises of Genesis? But poor Cecil B. DeMille, he had enough on his plate that he didn't have to go back to Genesis. But, uh, but we do, and Moses does. The land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. And notice how he punctuates. I am the Lord. How did he begin the conversation? I am the Lord. How does he end the conversation? I am the Lord. Those are literary bookends. Um, what, <clears throat> if we think about, again, about a concept of a, a literary sandwich, right? Begins and ends with, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. What is in the center of that? Content that demonstrates, I am the Lord. But when we look back, when we look at verse 6, 7, and 8, and we start counting I wills, we have a seven fold declaration of purpose. Seven great I wills. First, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you uh, for my people. I will be 
your God. He says that, of course, he's referring to the relationship between himself and the people of Israel uh, as formalized. That he will formalize the relate, and it will take on a new and deeper relationship, just in the same way, in the same way <clears throat> as when a man takes a woman and after saying these words, I will take be my wife and I will be your the relationship is never there. It's a much deeper and formalized and richer and more intimate relationship than had been heretofore experienced. Text. That's the language that God is using. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, so six, I will uh, bring you to the land of promise, and I will give that land to you as a possession. So these divine promises found in this passage form the basis for the names of the four cups that are consumed in the Passover Seder meal. Been, you know, for 2,000 years, uh, this has been part of the Passover Seder ritual. Each cup is, and for those of you who have been to our Passover Seders, you've experienced this, uh, many of you multiple on multiple occasions. Uh, some of you who haven't experienced it before, well, uh, 2019 will be your year uh, to, uh, to share that together with us. But each uh, cup is named after a particular promise or a, a set of promises. You have the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, the cup of consummation. You say, wait a second, Steve. I can read as well as you can, and you just said, and I, saw, I just read, that there were four I wills. Four, uh, I'm sorry, seven rather, I wills, but only four cups. Seven promises that God made, seven action verb I wills. Why only four cups? I don't know. Uh, I honestly, I, I can only think uh, and say the rabbis were rather wise in combining some of them because. Seven cups might have been a few cups too many uh, to have enjoyed the, uh, the, the Passover. All right. Uh, but uh, so they combine uh, on that fourth cup, they combine a, a set of promises together. That's what we call the cup of consummation, kind of catch all phrase. Uh, but uh, chapter uh, 6 9, Moses spoke thus. He conveyed, in other words, he transmitted the divine reassurance. He spoke thus to the sons of Israel. But to the dispirited Hebrews, his message was neither accepted nor believed. They did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage, to which Moses is now directed by God to return to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Go, tell the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Once again, Moses request of Pharaoh that he release the Hebrews. But what happens? Moses, as previously, again, felt very free. This is one of the reasons that uh, the relationship with Moses to the Lord is a unique one. Um, but he felt very free to voice his concerns to the Lord. Moses is no mere yes man, believe me. Um, he feels free to voice his concerns to God. Uh, and he says, behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me? How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For let me remind you, that's in the original Hebrew, I am unskilled in speech, right? 
Um, if <laughs> I, I feel for Moses here. If his own, I mean, he had done the signs and he had done this. If his own people had not believed the message, why should Pharaoh be expected to believe? And again, Moses refers to this um, inadequacy that he perceives himself to have in public persuasion. Well, God's going to reassure Moses uh, of this. Uh, yes, right, objection. Obje remember, five objections? Well, again, here's another one, right? Overruled. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So God reassures Moses and Aaron. They have been committed, commissioned, rather. You are my own personal team of representatives. And you are to go to two sets, basically now, two sets of unbelievers. You're going to represent me to two sets of unbelievers. Set number one, Pharaoh. Set number two, your own people, the children of Israel. Right? But now we interrupt the program. Um, it's really interesting because at, at this point in verse 14, the narrative flow is temporarily interrupted. You're, you're even building to a certain point, and the point we're building, of course, is to the plagues. Um, and uh, it, the narrative is completely interrupted. Um, why? To provide a genealogy of Moses and Aaron's family lineage, their pedigree. Well, how come? Serves to authenticate the brother's genealogical uh, qualification for the task as divine spokesman. Um, if you think about, if you need, if, if, if one of the qualities of, uh, of, of writing uh, to the Hebrews, to the Israelites for all time, is that well, it's important we establish some genealogical connection and uh, authenticity and authority for Moses and Aaron to have been these commission representatives. You've got to ask, well, where are you going to stick it? You know, we would today, we would, based probably upon, uh, uh, upon the narrative in Matthew, we would stick it at the beginning. Once upon a time, there lived, uh, you know, there lived a family and uh, uh, several generations down, you get a guy named Moses, you get a brother named Aaron. Um, but that's not the that's not the uh, convention that they used. Um, where you're going to put it? Best place to put it is right before the plagues begin, at the low point of Moses and Aaron being rejected at Pharaoh's court. The they're rejected by Pharaoh. They're rejected by the Hebrews. Um, let's stick a genealogy in there, and then we'll get back to the narrative flow. Um, but it's, it's very, very important, right? Uh, because, uh, again, uh, when we think about genealogies, they're not there uh, for, because Moses said, I got writer's block. I don't know what I'm going to write from this point. I, Moses was there. He remembers the story, how it flowed, right? Um, but you stick the genealogy, and it gives you a little bit of authenticity. So these are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanach and Palu, Hezron, Carmi. These are the families of Reuben, right? Firstborn. Sons of Simeon, uh, Jamul and uh, Jamin, and uh, uh, Jeremy and Jemima from Chiditi Bang Bang, and Ohad, and Yachin, and Yazohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Ooh, it's a little, little interesting soap opera there somewhere. These are the families of Simeon, right? And you dispense of the firstborn, the secondborn son very, very quickly, and you get to Levites, right? You got to get to the Levites. That's where the action is here in the story. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, right? Both Moses and Aaron, obviously brothers, came from the tribe of Levi. So they are descendants of Levi. 
So you have Gershon, Kohath, and uh, Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. Um, and uh, my, my Levi's, they only last about six years. And then they have tears in their, in their, in their knees, and it's terrible, uh, if I can even fit into them now. But the sons of Gershon, <laughs> the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemai, according to their families, uh, the sons of Kohath, and we're going to see uh, Kohath of the song, Amram and Ibsar and Hebron and Uziel. Amram's important. The length of Kohath's life, 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali and Mushi. Uh, uh, I, don't go there. These are the families of the Levites according to their generations. Now, it's interesting because um, only four generations are laid out. So if you want evidence, that when you have generations laid out in Scripture, that um, it, is, it was literary convention, ancient literary convention, to skip over generations, just literally hit the highlights of generations. Here you have it, right? Because remember, from the time that uh, Jacob and his sons, brothers of Joseph, came to Egypt to this point, for, for, you can't have the explosion in population in just four generations. It's not Possible. So there must be multiple generations that have been excised because they simply are unimportant to establishing the authenticity of Moses. So when we read, we can extrapolate from that when we read Genesis and all of those genealogies there, because remember who wrote the genealogies in Genesis? Same guy, Moses. It is quite possible that, and some would say probable, uh, that multiple generations. Uh, and the line have been uh, left out in the, you know, lost to the, the, the dust of history um, to make the genealogical points that need to be made. Make sense? Good. Well, now we get to uh, Moses uh, and Aaron's mommy and daddy. Amram married his father's sister, Yocheved. Yes, that does mean that a nephew married his aunt. Um, remember Mosaic law and prohibitions against any ancestral relations like this, a nephew marrying an aunt, didn't exist at the time. And so completely, uh, shall we say, kosher at this time. Amram married his father's sister, Yocheved. She bore him Aaron and Moses, the length of Amram's life, 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Defeg, and Zichri. Sons of Uziel, Mishael, and uh, Elzapan, and Sithri. Um, that's uh, the, he actually had a, a, a film about him, The Revenge. Uh, and then Aaron married Elisheva, the daughter of... Folks, these are the jokes, I'm sorry. Uh, the daughter of, of Aminadab, the sister of Nachshan, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, and you know what happens to them in Leviticus 10. If you don't, then you can read later on and see what happens to them. And then Eliezer and Ithamar, the two, let's just... Spoilers, surviving sons of Aaron, sons of Korah, uh, and, uh, and Korach is going to be a, a bad guy in numbers. These are the families of the Korhites. And Aaron's son, Eliezer, married one of the daughters of Puthiel. She bore him Phineas. He's a hero in numbers. Uh, and these are, has, a, has his own covenant, He's a big guy. Uh, and these are the heads of the father's households of the Levites, according to their family. Boom! You've now established your genealogical authenticities, your, boni, your bona fides. It was the same. <laughs> I love this connection. <laughs> he leaves the narrative, gives you a little genealogy, and then when he comes back, it was the same Aaron and Moses, not, not Aaron and Moses from, uh, from, from uh, uh, Africa, 
uh, not Aaron Moses from uh, over uh, in, in the west side, but the same Aaron and Moses we've been talking about, to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their host. I just heard them. Uh, so, so sometimes uh, it doesn't all work. But you know what I'm talking about. These are the ones, <laughs> these are the ones, we're going to think you're talking about somebody else. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. I love that. Just in case there's any confusion here, we're back to the narrative, and this is who we're talking about. It came about on that day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, and the narrative now jumps right back to before the emergency broadcast system, a genealogical system broke in and interrupted the narrative flow. We're right back. It came about on that day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Again, in case you slept through the genealogy, let me remind you of what was important about what we just covered. I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm unskilled in How then will Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord said to Moses, See, I make you God, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Moses' authority is going to be so great that it would that before Pharaoh, Moses is a God. Not the God, but a God. And Aaron plays the role of prophet to Moses playing the role of divinity, right? And we talked about prophets today in our Torah portion, right? We saw that. What is a prophet? A prophet is one who receives direct revelation from God and as his spokesman communicates that revelation to God's people or to the person to whom he needs to. So in this convoluted, uh, convoluted arrangement developed because Moses is an insecure guy, very careful, very clearly, you got this convoluted arrangement. Um, just as God is going to transmit his word to the prophets, to the people, so Moses, um, functioning as kind of a little junior God, uh, the, the middleman, um, would transmit God's message to Aaron and then from him to Pharaoh. You shall speak all I command, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh. He let the sons of Israel go out of the land. But, but. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will strengthen his backbone, in other words, that I may multiply my sons, my wonder, in the land of Egypt. Those first couple of plagues are going to be so intense, he's going he's he's to bend. He's going he's he's to want to give in. But in his heart of hearts, he's going to want to say no. I'm going to give him the courage. I'll give him a little divine shot of courage. Strengthen his backbone. Strengthen his heart. That he'll do what's in his heart of heart that he'll actually do what he really wants. And that will result in the wonders of God being multiplied in the land of Egypt, multiplied by ten. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Bring out my armies, my people, and the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgment. The result of this is that the Egyptians will know, not just Pharaoh, not just the Israelites, but all of Egypt will know, Ani Adonai, I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from there. Well, um, as we close, I want to simply point out one thing in this verse that I find absolutely compelling. We talk about the Egyptians. 
possessing firsthand experience of Israel's covenant-keeping God. In other words, they are going to experience not just the power of a God or the God, but specifically, they're going to experience life experience. Their own sights and sounds senses. Um, they're going to experience the power of the covenant-keeping God of Israel firsthand. Divine power. The subsequent deliverance of that power from his people, from their midst, throughout, not just here, but through the narrative. There's repeated emphasis on how the Lord both acts and reacts to events with an eye toward how God's act, how God's actions are going to play on the Egyptians. In other words, there are multiple passages, one that we will see in the course of the narrative, where God is going to specifically act with, uh, with an understanding of how his actions are going to play out among the Egyptians. In other words, he's demonstrating his concern not just for the Israelites, but for the Egyptians as well. It is very clear that God is not unconcerned. And when I say God is not unconcerned, I, just a nice way, of, a fancy schmancy way of saying God is concerned with establishing his reputation among the Egyptians and maintaining that reputation among the Egyptians. I need to stop here just prior to Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh and just prior to introducing, because we got, uh, I, I gave you a little bit of a preview with this, um, which is a neat thing. We'll talk about this next, next week when we get into the text, um, but the plagues especially. But all of this is prologue to what Hollywood emphasizes, which are the big action pieces, big set pieces, is, yeah, we want to see big, big motions like the, the snake, of the staff turning into a snake, and like the water turning into blood, and various other... We want to see those big set pieces. That's what we go to see. We want to go see the spectacle. But God is God's not concerned with the spectacle. God has no problem, and in fact, is pointedly going to use spectacle. But the spectacle will serve a purpose. Spectacle is not an end to itself. Spectacle is the means to an end. And that end is first to liberate his people and keep his covenant promised. But secondly, that end, that spectacle, those spectacular things that we will see over the next the signs, the wonders that will result in the devastation of the land of Egypt and the Egyptian Pharaoh himself, is designed to communicate the Egyptian. Not just to show his power and say, I'm stronger than you, I'm taking my people out of here, but I'm stronger than you, what are you going to do about it? And so, let me leave you with this question. God is stronger than us. What are you going to do about it? God made certain promises to the Jewish people, made certain promises to all of us who follow Yeshua. Covenant guarantee. Of course, the guarantee was the sign and wonder. The sign and wonder, the guarantee of the new covenant is the blood of our Messiah. Death, burial, and resurrection on the third day of our Messiah. So what are you going to do about this covenant? God. What is your relationship with this covenant-keeping God? Are you in the center of a relationship with Him or on the periphery? Or maybe you don't have a relationship with Him yet at all, which I would say, what are you waiting for? Well, we'll continue our conversation next time as we see Moses and Aaron 
front arrow another time. <laughs>